Good morning again. Happy Father's Day to all our fathers. I think the highest calling of a father might be that which we read about in Luke chapter 23 at the end where it states these five words. He gave up his spirit. Ultimate demonstration of love in Luke chapter 23. Jesus Christ on the cross gave up his spirit. And I think fathers, as a highest calling, ought to be able to give up their spirit for their families. To pour themselves out, even unto death if it called for it. That's what a father should have as an ultimate aim and an ultimate demonstration of security for his family, in my opinion. And in, in, the, in the end of Luke also, we see a number of events taking place that will transition us into today's focus. You have uh, between 3 and 6 p.m. on a Friday, a late Friday afternoon, some things taking place that are of interest. Not only did the Lord give up His Spirit, but one who believed that was a part of that prominent council that put him to death, the Sanhedrin council, one who was a secret believer came forward courageously and asked for the body of Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Interestingly, Isaiah spoke of him in Isaiah chapter 53 when he said that he would, be, he would die among criminals but be buried with the rich at his death. The prophet spoke of Joseph and Joseph came forward asking the permission from Pilate to take the body of Jesus down and give him a proper burial and he did so in a nearby tomb near to the uh, to the Mount of Calvary it was hewn out to be a tomb used for someone important probably family maybe even for himself and he gave it to who was now his Lord for his burial also Nicodemus came forward with a hundred pounds of spices and fragrances to dedicate to, to honor his Lord, another council member. See, they were starting to come forth. And some of the disciples, the women in particular, observed them doing this and watched how they laid his body and covered him in the, the, the burial linens laid him in the tomb and put the cloth across his face and sealed the door shut, rolled a large stone uh, over in front of the door, uh, the entrance to this tomb. So not only was it secured by a large stone, but on the following morning, some of the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and said, hey, we need to secure this tomb because he proclaimed, and his disciples are proclaiming, he's going to rise again. Unless they come as body snatchers and snatch this body, we request a guard. We request some security. And Pilate said, very well, you have a guard. And, and so that day on the Sabbath, they began to uh, probably uh, rotate watches uh, and keep guard of this tomb. But the disciples were not it wasn't in their mind to go and steal the body of Jesus. They didn't understand. Yet, they had not even allowed it to sink in that he was dead, let alone understand the implications of, of a missing Savior from the tomb. 
that took some time yet to, to help them to understand the implications of this and what it meant and to put this perspective together of a risen Lord. And so they were simply observing the Sabbath as obedient followers of God under the old covenant law. But at about 6 p.m. on that Saturday evening, they busied themselves, as you can imagine, a bunch of these women who were following doing in preparing spices and fragrant oils to put in the tomb of the Lord, obviously to make it a more pleasant place to visit and show honor. He was not underground, but, but in an open tomb. And so they prepared feverishly that Saturday evening. And no doubt while it was still dark, they arose on Sunday morning. Friday, Jesus was placed in the tomb. Saturday, he remained there. And Sunday morning, when they got up early to go out and place these things in the tomb so that they would arrive at about daylight, they asked a curious question. One of them said, who will roll the stone away for us? They had seen the size of the stone that had been placed there to secure the tomb. Perhaps it was even rolled downhill in a groove to cover the tomb so that somebody could not just come and roll it away very easily. I don't know, and here's a question for you, I don't know that they knew there was a Roman guard guarding the tomb. That happened on a Sabbath while they were observing the Sabbath. And the soldiers were gone when they got there. Much to their surprise, not only did they not find Roman soldiers, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And standing beside them were two angels. And one spoke and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember what He spoke to you when you were in Galilee. Remember. Remember and believe. Oh, what an exciting morning that became as they ran back to tell the disciples. I believe it's possible that Mary Magdalene arrived first and saw an angel whom she thought to be the gardener because she could not even make out in the early morning light who it was. And perhaps went back to town as the, another group of women came out and, and it records that two angels spoke to them a little bit different wording. I think there was much travel that began to take place as they went back and started to tell all these things, Luke says. They started to tell all these things. The stones rolled away. He's not there. Uh, an angel spoke to us and said he's risen. Remember what he talked about in Galilee. And then Peter finally, as he's probably remembering and, and coming to and maybe even going like this, right? Took off with John out of that place where they were staying and down across through the entrance of the city and and up to this tomb and Peter rushed in. John stopped and just, Peter, <laughs> he, he hit his knees or whatever it took to get in there and he went in, he wanted to look. 
That sounds like Peter, doesn't it? I, I got to touch it. I got to see for myself. And lo and behold, the tomb was empty. And so the greatest historical event in the history of mankind and all the annals of recorded history or unrecorded happened on that Sunday morning. It, it, it was so impactful that you found it necessary today to rub your eyes and awaken and arise from bed and to come here and worship him. My niece, when I started to revere less my Lord in my younger years, I'll never forget her saying when she had missed me at church, she said, Uncle Matt, Jesus arose from the dead so you can arise from your bed. Woo! Yeah, that hit hard. Within hours, the Lord appeared to them. And again, several times that day and over the course of 40 days, he appeared to them regularly. And what did he want to talk about? But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It was near, it was near, it was near. Now it's here. He was seen in various appearances by the disciples whom he allowed to, and even invited and encouraged to touch his body, to feel the, the, the scars of the healed wounds, to eat with him, to be healed as Peter needed from his denial, to converse with him and forgive him and to charge him to take this news and to go into the world. He, he rebuilt Peter. He appeared to them and over 500 brethren at one time. Now, we may have about 250 here today. That's about my guess. You can look later and see how close I was. I'm going to say there's about 250 people. You double the number of people in this room. Just picture a mirror side back here with that many people looking at you. It's a good crowd. He appeared to 500 brethren at one time. Some years later, Paul called upon that and said, some, some have passed away, but most of them are still alive right now, as he wrote to the Corinthians. This resurrection was not to be a surprise. It's still not to be a surprise. It's shocking, but it's not surprising. There's a difference if you think about those two words. It's shocking that it happened. Like it really did happen, but it wasn't supposed to be a surprise. Jesus kept saying to them, Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, you, oh, you so slow to believe. Do you not remember? Believe what? What do we believe about the resurrection? We believe by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that God can raise the dead and in his demonstration of doing so for Jesus, he did this for us to understand that he will do it again. He's going to do it again. It will be shocking, but it better not be surprising. Don't be caught off guard, the Lord taught all through his ministry. Be ready for that day. It's the creative power of God which 
probably most of you, if not all of you in this room, believe that brought you into existence, into this world. It's this creative power of God being demonstrated in the recreation of the body of his own son and bringing him forth to life. I like what Blaise Pascal said in the 17th century. What reason have atheists for saying that we cannot rise again? What is the more difficult, he said, to be born or to rise again? He said, that what has never been should be? That what has never been should be? Or that what has been should be again? Which is the more difficult, he asks. Is it more difficult to come into being than to return to it? You see, if you believe that God is, the resurrection should not be a surprise. This was his work from the beginning to reveal to us through his word in written form. To have it cemented and preserved for all generations that God has been working on this from before the garden, but he began in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, where one who would come from the seed of a woman would destroy the work of the devil. And he chose the man Abraham after the flood. And he said, Abram, from your body, I'm going to bless all the families of the world. They'll be given the opportunity to know a Savior You see, it's possible for God to raise the dead, but it's it's probable. Do you know why? Because we're sinful. We're sinful. We recognize the difference between good and evil, and we recognize with little reflection that we play a part in both. If God can create, He can recreate. If man's biggest problem is sin then it's probable that God raises the dead and raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's probable that He did. We can reason about that and understand that there would be a great need for somehow this God to give life to men who are dying and and reveling in sin. It's probable that He did speak to us, predict this, and do it. But I propose to you that if Jesus Christ raised from the dead, if he's the son of God, it's certain. It's certain that we will raise from the dead too. As Jesus put it in John chapter 5, those who have done good, that is those who have been obedient to God through Jesus Christ, that's what it means to do good, not to be a good moral person. Those who have done good, that is to hearken unto the word of God, to believe him and to adjust their lives and align their lives with God's will. Those who have done good in this will be raised to life. They'll be given life again. That which has been will be again, as Pascal would have put it. Those who have done evil to the resurrection, yes, a resurrection. All who are in the graves, he said, will come forth. There will be a resurrection of every man and woman on this earth, and those who have done evil will be raised to be condemned. 
Be ready. Don't be surprised. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, after feeding 5,000 men with two fish and five loaves, the disciples confessed that He was Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But instead of basking in the glory, Jesus revealed this. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. This is the passage to which the angels referred to in Galilee when he said to the women, remember what he told you in Galilee. When you said, you're the Christ, when Peter spoke for them and they all agreed, I must suffer many things, be rejected by our people, our leaders, and be killed at their hands and raised again the third day. Remember what he said to you in Galilee. In Luke chapter 22, in the upper room, Jesus prepared, uh, he prepared them for this long night ahead by saying, right there before his arrest, for I say to you that that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And, quote, he was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, unquote. And he finished by saying, for the things concerning me have an end. There is a point to this. I must do this. It will happen to me. I will raise from the dead and there's an end to it. There's a, there's a, there's a great, great purpose to this. The post-resurrection script is as clear as the pre-resurrection script. This was not to be a surprise. After he was raised and he spoke to the apostles and prepared them for his departure when he ascended back into the heavens, he said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. He said, it says, and he opened their understanding. And that's what I hope to do with you today, by the way. Do you believe these things? Oh, yes. But there's a difference between acknowledging and opening your understanding and yielding to that information of a resurrection. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, He said to them. Behold, listen to this. Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. There's more coming to this unfolding and this unveiling of the power of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit is going to come to them and begin to work the works of God through these men. And so Paul, as he stood on trial some years later, before King Agrippa, who was a Jew, before King Agrippa, 
says to him, For the king before whom I also freely speak knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Paul appealed to the evidence for the resurrection. He appealed to the prophets. He appealed to the Psalms and the law. And he appealed to this king and he said, I'm sure that this has not escaped your attention. This was not done in a corner. And I stand here as testimony of one who was against Christ to take whatever comes to me to testify to you, O king, that he's risen from the dead. This is the boldness with which the apostles were filled. And this is the boldness with which they passed this torch down to the next generation. And it's been passed down for centuries. God is able. God was willing to allow us to believe. The resurrection, I'm wording this intentionally, the resurrection allows us to believe. The resurrection also allows us to receive. Receive what? The kingdom. The kingdom of Daniel 2.44, which shall never be destroyed, which the God of heaven would set up in the days of the Roman Empire by a king who will never die. Because he lives, he reigns as king. And he holds, as he said in Revelation chapter 1, the keys of Hades and death. He holds the keys to death. That means he has power over it, folks. When you're holding the keys to something right now today, you and very few others, maybe if anyone, hold the power over entry into your house, into your car, into your office. When you hold the keys... That's your business. And he holds the keys to Hades, the realm of the dead, and death itself, possessing power over them. How? Through the resurrection of the dead. You see, the greatest power Satan has is to separate you from your God so that your soul is no longer alive because you're separated from the life-giving source God himself. You're separated from him. You'll, you'll die like an ember kicked outside of a fire. You'll smolter out and die without him. And Jesus, when he overcame death, holds the power to keep life in his hands. He sustains it by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. And he holds all things in the grip of his hand. And he holds souls in his hand. And his children are gripped tightly in his hand so that Jesus said, no one can snatch you away. No one can take you out of his hand. If that's where you want to be found, that's where you will be found to the resurrection of life. Christians are in the kingdom. John wrote in Revelation chapter 1 to his brethren in the tribulation and in the kingdom. 
We've arrived. The Hebrew letter says we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We're receiving it in part, and we will yet receive it in full when we enter into what Anthony called in his Bible class a perfect world without sin. That's when we'll receive the fullness of that kingdom. But we've, we've been allowed to enter in. Listen to how Peter says this. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent and to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, speaking of these values, these qualities and characteristics, we are to add one upon another in the second letter, the virtues we call them. If you do these things, you'll never stumble. But I love this. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The door will be kicked open and no one will be able to shut it. Doesn't that sound like what he said in Revelation again? He who opens the door and no one shuts. You come in. You're supplied an everlasting entrance into this kingdom. You come in and out by this shepherd and he will protect you in this kingdom. You're a subject of his. We cannot do anything to earn this grace. It's received. The resurrection for those who believe it and turn to Christ to employ that power of death, uh, over death into their own lives will receive a kingdom by grace. You can't earn it. Finally, the resurrection calls us not only to believe and to receive, but to retrieve. I know, I couldn't think of a better word, but it rhymed. But it makes sense. But you say retrieve what? Lost souls. It's the most impactful, influential news flash that has ever occurred. Very few things still impact us that have happened in our lives. There's some things that really have jarred my life, my understanding of life. Some things continue to happen that really shake me and disturb me. 9-11 would be a good example of that. Mass shootings. Mass murders would be a good example of that. Maybe I'm ashamed to say that after some time, the impact of that begins to wane some. It shouldn't. Well, Matt, it shouldn't. I know that. But the, but the people are, are gone. We turn our attention to the future. We do what we can to honor the dead. We do what we can to avoid future things like this from happening. We make vows to try to change the world to a better place, but nothing has the sustaining power to impact, influence, and change lives like the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because He lives right now. He's communed with us today. He's in our presence where two or three are gathered together. There am I in your midst. He's here. He's here today. That impacts me today like it did yesterday, and even more so. Even more so. 
And his promises, as Peter said, are exceedingly precious. They're exceedingly precious. A beauty of hope. Next week I get the privilege of preaching on Sunday night in the, in the sermon series that Anthony's preaching through Romans 8. And he assigned me a new hope. Here's a passage that you cannot fully appreciate until you season some in Christ. Hope. But the exceedingly great and precious promises. When you're young, when you're a new Christian, when you're a babe, you can only just dream about them and wonder. And, but as you relate to Christ and, and allow him into your life and allow him to do that work with the Spirit working together in tandem to, to mold you and recreate you and give you life. Oh, hope is one of my favorite words now. It just sounds good every morning. <laughs> his, his mercies are new every morning. Hope sounds good as the snow on the mountain is deepening. <laughs> as it's deepening, his promises are now not just promises, they're precious promises. I can wake up in hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you listen to the words of the song Rodney led us in? God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And I come to appreciate that second verse. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. So many times I've, I've fretted over what my children will face in our world. And then I start thinking about my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and I get overwhelmed. I worry for them because the tendency is to think everything's getting worse all the time, right? It's not. But we see moral decay. We see these things. And then I go, I'm not in control. And Jesus Christ lives. And as long as I can instill faith by my influence in the hearts of my children, they're going to be okay. They're going to live no matter what comes their way. The book of Acts, which we're going to embark upon a study of next week. <clears throat> the book of Acts is the story of how these disciples who witnessed the living, resurrected Lord began to develop their lives in conjunction with that truth. How they began to pool together and receive guidance as a body of believers to take what they know to be true and to minister to one another and to tell all these things, quote unquote. To tell all these things. How did they do it? Well, conviction. Conviction. They believed that he was alive. 
vision. The Hebrew letter says in chapter 11 that all these who lived in faith died in faith. They died not having received the promise. But they saw it afar off and declared that they were strangers and pilgrims in this land. Conviction, vision. They lifted up their heads as we learned a few weeks ago that Jesus taught us to do. But lift up your heads and look to the heavens. They had a sense of mission. Jesus poured himself into this. That this was not just something that they themselves were to partake of and then let it die. But they themselves would begin to pour into others. They understood the sense of mission, the urgency. The Son of Man must. Thus it was written and thus it was necessary. That he offer himself for all men that ever lived, were living at the time, and will live in our day. And, and in future generations, it was necessary that he die for them. And so they received this sense of mission, especially when he said in his parting words, Go! Go into all the world as I've trained you. Now go and preach the gospel to every creature. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. We must go. We must. He must die. It was necessary that he die for all men. We must go. It's necessary that we go and carry out this message. And they engaged with each other. And they developed their worship and they developed their fellowship and they developed their learning in Acts chapter 2 immediately upon becoming Christians. And they developed their ministry. And you don't have to read very far to see that. They immediately recognized they had all things in common. What's mine is yours. And they began to work together to fulfill needs and and if they heard that anyone had need, they fulfilled it. Be it financial, in many cases in those contexts it was. Most importantly, spiritual needs. They fulfilled those ministries. And so I want to set before you, dear brethren, that from here forward, this body of believers must be devoted to a disciple-making culture. That's our mission. It's actually not ours, it's God's. We need to make sure we're on it. We need to make sure we're on it. Out of love for God and man, which is, which is our core value, we value the great two commandments here. Matthew 22. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. With that as our core belief, we need to make disciples which is our mission Matthew 28:19 with the aim of preparing a church for heaven which is our vision the preparation of that church for heaven is what we ought to be able to see ourselves doing and becoming 
in future weeks, months, and years, preparing a church for their groom. By equipping all saints, which is going to become our goal, Ephesians 4.12, and for the work of ministry, our objectives, Ephesians 4.12, in the areas of your giftedness, which is our strategy, Ephesians 4.7. So focusing on our worship, our fellowship, our learning, and our ministry, this question, does this make disciples, will become the first question that the leadership is going to ask. Does this make disciples? How can it make disciples? How can we embody our mission in this ministry? Realignment so far has demanded a fresh approach and shifting of energies from the elders and from your evangelists and is currently working among the deacons and their families and will eventually reach every member, is our prayer. The task of identifying each one's grace gift, Ephesians 4, 7, from Christ and putting it to work in the body will require special attention. And I want to inform you of this with your cooperation with the elders' blessing, with Anthony's encouragement. I am going to shift most of my attention in upcoming months to ministry development and mission alignment with the church here. This means that we're going to develop pathways that you may come into doing ministry, but you know what's going to happen when that happens. You're also going to be receiving ministry. We keep talking about doing, doing. We're going to plug in, we're going to plug in. Don't forget those needs that you have will be met by someone sitting next to you in here whose gift it is that God has not overlooked to put in this body for you to grow thereby. So we're going to be thinking about what we can do to give our gift and what we need to receive from the strength of our brethren. So with much prayer and watchfulness, we'll go forward into this business church. And we're going to pull some out of the fire, as Jude put it. We're going to pull some out of the fire. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel as we do this. Do not underestimate what God can do through us. Just be willing to give of yourself. And if you are here and some of these things are strange to your ears, which we have been talking about now for several months and the course of a year, we want you to come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and get on mission with Him. He's on one. He's on fire for it. We want you to get a fire lit under you because Jesus Christ raised up from the dead and the tomb is still empty. So that opportunity is afforded to you this morning. And we are going to sing this song and encourage anyone who has need of Jesus today to make that known to us.